morning. Christ is risen. We're going to be back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Last week, Pastor Nick covered the first six verses. We're going to read the whole chapter for context. If you will, stand for the reading of God's word. These are the words of God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of, con- of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter having been written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifest that you are a letter of Christ, ministered to us, having been written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of hearts of flesh. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us also ministers, or sufficient rather, as ministers of a new covenant, Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters having been engraven on stone came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, which was being brought to an end, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be even more in glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what has been glorious in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which was being brought to an end was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the consequences of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because it's brought to an end in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new covenant you established in the blood of Christ. Let me preach about that covenant faithfully. And Lord, we pray that you draw more and more sinners into it through our proclamation. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Well, before we get to the main portion of our text, we need to establish a little bit of context to help us make sense out of Paul's argument. If you're taking notes, we're going to talk first about Paul's polemical context. Paul's polemical context. This is the first hint that we get in the book so far of who these false teachers are that were plaguing the church. I think their identity is hinted at and alluded to here by Paul by his lengthy discussion of the Old Covenant. And I think it gives us reason to think that the false teachers in the church, or at least one group of these false teachers in the church, were the Judaizers. The Judaizers were seemingly the most pervasive of all the false teachers in the early church. We read Paul combating this heresy in many letters, especially in the book of Galatians. But the errors of the Judaizers are touched on in most of Paul's epistles. Many people oversimplify the error of the Judaizers. They say, well, they believed in justification by works. And that's true. They did certainly believe in a kind of intermingling of justification and works, but there's a little more to it than that. They didn't just believe that we're justified by works, 
They believe we're justified through our submission to the Old Covenant, that Old Covenant law. These people were coming out of Judaism. They recognized Christ as the Messiah, but they said if you want salvation in Christ, you had to first go through the Old Covenant. If you wanted to get to the salvation offered by Christ, you had to submit yourselves to all the ceremonies and trappings of the Old Covenant. You had to be circumcised, for example. You had to submit yourself to the dietary code. You had to keep the festivals. And I believe it's in the context of refuting the errors of Judaism, uh, the Judaizers, rather, that Paul wrote this lengthy section of the Old Covenant in chapter 3. But to give a, a little more explicit evidence that Paul's combating the Judaizers, turn with me for a second to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Chapter 11, starting in verse 21, uh, we read Paul listing his credentials as an apostle over and against those false apostles who were challenging him, and he's pointing out their, uh, their status, uh, what they're bringing before the people to commend themselves as apostles. Verse 21, but in whatever respect anyone else is daring, I speak in foolishness, I'm just as daring myself. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's seed? Well, so am I. It seems that these false teachers were boasting in their Jewishness, boasting in their connection to Abraham to gain credibility in the eyes of the Corinthians. So not that it's uh, actually important in the grand scheme of things, but Paul, he boasts back. He says, well, I'm a Jew. If you're going to say that being a Jew qualifies you to preach the gospel of Christ, well, here I am. I'm the Jew of Jews, as we read in Philippians chapter 3. But in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul's concern is not so much with the ethnicity of these false teachers as with their doctrine. Remember, these Judaizers taught that if you wanted to get to Christ, you had to get to him through the Old Covenant. Paul's answer isn't going to uh, go into a long discourse on justification by faith. We get that elsewhere, and he very well could have done that here. But he cuts the false teachers off at the knees in verse 6. Let's read it. God also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Again, instead of immediately addressing the false doctrine of justification that is really at the heart of the Judaizing uh, teaching, Paul steps back and looks at those who say they want to keep ministering this old covenant to the people of God after Christ has already come, and he points out that he and Timothy are ministers of a new and better covenant. That covenant which the Judaizers are trying to minister is a covenant of the letter, he says. That is, it's a covenant characterized by the letters of the law, the Mosaic law, if you remember back in Exodus, God rescued the people out of Israel and took them, uh, or out of Egypt rather, and took them to Mount Sinai to establish his covenant of law. And the people all cried out in one unified voice, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. This is the covenant of law. Yahweh promised that if the Israelites obeyed his law and kept his covenant, that he would bless the nation. But if they disobeyed, he would destroy them. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 28 for just a second. We're just going to read a sampling of these blessings and cursings that are found as part of this old covenant system. We'll start in verse 1, Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. Now it will be, if you diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I'm commanding you today, notice the conditional nature of the covenant. He says, if you do this, then I'll do this. He says, if you diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I'm commanding you this day, then Yahweh your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you listen to the voice of Yahweh your God 
Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall your basket be and your kneading bowl. And he goes on and on and says, if you obey, if you keep the law, these are the blessings that will come to you. But we read in verse 15, it will be if you do not listen to the voice of Yahweh your God to keep them and do them, all his commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Let's read some of those. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your basket and your kneading bowl be. Cursed be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Yahweh will send upon you the curse, confusion, and rebuke, and all that you send forth your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of the evil deeds because you have forsaken me. They've turned away from the covenant. Again, this covenant was conditional. It was conditioned on their obedience to the law. Do this and live. We see that all over the Old Testament. If you fail to do this, you will surely die. And Paul calls it a covenant of the letter because it's characterized by a strict obedience which the Israelites had to perform if they wanted the blessings of the covenant. If they want blessing, if they want to increase and dwell in the land, they had to render to God a thoroughgoing and holistic obedience to the law. God delivered his holy and righteous law, a law which reflected his perfect character and moral purity, and he held it before the Israelites and said, obey every last word of it if you want your blessing. Obey down to the smallest detail if you don't want to be cut off from the covenant. And for the rest of the history of Israel, we see God's judgment coming down on the Jews for failing to live up to this standard that they've been given. The law kept reminding them, you're not righteous enough. You're not holy enough. You're not pure enough. And over and over again, we see God punishing Israel because the law which they had been given pursued them and relentlessly required that they be perfect. And under the immense weight and burden of fulfilling the commandments, The law slayed the Israelites. Unable to live up to the law's unwavering demands, they were struck down time after time in the Old Testament. First in the wilderness, then later by Babylon and Assyria and other foreign nations who God sent against them. The law kept saying, you're not pure enough. You're not righteous enough. You're not good enough. And here we find the meaning of Paul's word that the letter kills. The law kills. Far from bringing salvation and life, that old covenant only brought curses and death. This is the covenant that the Judaizers are trying to put the Corinthians under. This is the kind of ministry that they had. Paul, on the other hand, says he's a minister of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. While that old covenant is characterized by a law that brings death, the covenant which Paul ministers to the Corinthians is characterized by a a Spirit which brings life. The Judaizers were arguing that the Corinthians had to go through the old covenant to get to Christ. But Paul responds by saying that the old covenant never gave life to anyone. As we read in the beginning of verse 7, it was a ministry of death. It was a ministry of death because, as Pastor Nick pointed out last week, it gave commands without giving any power to fulfill the commands. It required strict obedience without actually empowering the Jews to obey. But the problem wasn't with the commandments. Paul reminds us in Romans 7 that the commandment is holy and righteous and good. No, the problem was not with the covenant. It was that the members of the covenant were unregenerate. Flip over for a second to Hebrews chapter 8. This is the lengthiest discourse we get on uh, the nature of the new covenant. Let's remind ourselves of the context of the book real quick. 
The book of Hebrews was written, it seems, to dissuade Jewish converts from going back to the cultic practices of Judaism. I'm sure it was even in the families of some of these converts who had just recently come to Christ out of Judaism, and they were probably saying to their children, look at all the suffering you're enduring for the sake of this crucified Messiah. Just come back. Come back to the old ways. Come back to the temple. Come back to Torah and the ceremonies. Come back. And the response of the author of Hebrews is to say to these early Jewish converts that there's nothing to go back to. There's nothing to go back to because the Messiah who came had provided something infinitely better than that which was offered to you by the Old Covenant. In verse 6 of Hebrews 8, we get an example of that contrast, contrast between Old and New Covenants. Here the author is pleading with them not to return to Judaism because of this better covenant obtained by the blood of Christ. In verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. The Old Covenant provided the mediation of Moses, he's saying, but the New Covenant provides the mediation of the perfect Son of God. The Old Covenant promises earthly life in Canaan. The New Covenant promises everlasting life in Christ. And verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Remember, this is a prophecy of Jeremiah. This was foretold many, many years ago. He's pointing out that there really was something wrong with that Old Covenant. And here's what was wrong with it. For finding fault with the covenant, no, not exactly, for finding fault with what? Them. The problem wasn't that God required strict obedience. The Israelites owed him that. No, the problem was that the old covenant was breakable, that no one actually obeyed it, that no one actually was able to fulfill the requirements that the law had. We read on. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a uh, will not, excuse me, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And he says, it's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. And here we have the really big difference, for they did not, what, continue in my covenant. We see that the old covenant being broken time and time again, but the new covenant, as we read in the next few, few verses, is unbreakable. And the reason we can't break it, it's, it's not because we're more righteous than the Jews. I promise you that. It's not because we're better people or work harder than they did. No, the, the reason why I will never fall out of God's new covenant mercies is because they're all bestowed upon me and wrought in me by the sovereign spirit of God. Because he does the work. He caused me to be born again and made me into a new creature in Christ. It's God's work, and that's why it's not breakable. We read that in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Notice the initiative here. I will put my laws into their minds. And upon their hearts, I will write them. Remember in the old covenant, the law cried out, do this and live. But the glory of the new covenant is that God calls out to his people in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have done this for you. Notice the contrast Paul makes in this passage as well as in 2 Corinthians. He speaks of the Old Covenant. He talks about that law being external, written on tablets, outside of the people of God. You can look at the commandments with your eyes. You can read them. You can understand them. But it's only through the New Covenant that the law becomes something that grabs our affections. We read on in Hebrews chapter 8. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I'll be merciful to their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. That's the glory of the new covenant. Unlike the old, which brought its members under the curses and condemnation of the law, the glory of the new covenant is that all of its members, from least to greatest, from top to bottom, all of its members will know the Lord. And each and every one of them will be taken out of Adam and placed under the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And in verse 13 of Hebrews, this will segue us back into our text in 2 Corinthians, verse 13 of Hebrews 8. When he said, a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. But whatever is uh, becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. That old covenant was never meant to last forever. Everything we read in the Old Testament is driving toward and pointing toward the incarnation of Christ and this establishment of the new covenant. We read back in 2 Corinthians 3. Let's turn back there in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3. But if the ministry of death and letters having been engraven on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the faces of Moses because of the glory of his face, which was being brought to an end, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be even more in glory? In case we were tempted to demean that old covenant or say it was harsh or unjust, Paul reminds us that although it was a ministry of death, it came with great glory. To prove its glory, he reminds us of the the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 34. If you remember, Moses had gone back up to Mount Sinai to renew the covenant with the Lord that he'd already made. And when he came down the mountain, he descended the mountain, his face was said to have shone like a great light. Paul's saying that the shining of the face of Moses expresses the glory that really was in the old covenant. It's glorious not only because it revealed God's holiness, not only because it gave Israel a perfect standard of righteousness, although it did, but because the covenant brought the presence of the Lord near the people of Israel. Later in the books of Moses, we read about the tabernacle. And once that tabernacle is built, God dwells even closer to his people. He inhabits the tabernacle. And then even later, God condescends and makes his presence even more manifest in the temple. But with all the glory that the the presence of the Lord brought to the land of Israel, Paul makes the argument that it was a temporary and fading glory, just like the shining of Moses' face. Not because God was done manifesting his glory to the people. No, because he chose to manifest his glory even more fully and more finally in the person of Jesus Christ, the mediator of this new covenant. And Paul says that if the old covenant of death, which was temporary and fleeting, came with glory, how could the life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit of God not have even more glory? Remember, Paul's making his argument against the Judaizers who were trying to lead people away from Paul's preaching and teaching and place them under this old covenant all the Old Covenant ceremonies and laws. And I'm sure the Judaizers were pointing out many true things about the law. Don't you know that the law was written with the finger of God himself? Don't you know it reveals his holiness? That it's the heritage of the great fathers of the faith? It's the covenant that brought Moses and David and Solomon near the presence of the Lord? Don't you know it's a covenant filled with the glory of God? And Paul says to the Corinthians, yes, That covenant is glorious, there's no doubt. But do you really want to search out a temporary and fading glory when the new covenant in in Christ's blood has come? A covenant whose glory far surpasses the fading glory of Moses. That's the covenant that Paul ministers to the Corinthians. The old covenant may have brought the presence of the Lord near the Israelites, but it's only through the new covenant that the presence of the Spirit is brought into the believer. The old covenant revealed a holy law on tablets of stone, but the new covenant writes that holy holy law on the tablets of our hearts. The old offered security in the land of Canaan, but the new brings security in the new heavens and the new earth. For the Corinthians to turn back to that old covenant would be utterly foolish. It would be uh, to go back on the shadows when the substance has already come in Christ. It would be to show that they misunderstood the whole point of the old covenant in the first place. Paul says in Galatians that the whole point of the covenant was to serve as a a guardian, a tutor, he says in chapter 3, to lead the people to Christ. But he says, once Christ has come, we don't need the tutor anymore. Which goes back to the glory of the old covenant, really. The most glorious part of the old covenant 
is that it testified by types and shadows a better covenant that was coming. That it held forth the gospel, the good news of a Messiah that was coming to save his people. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we hear little hints of that promise. A seed that was coming to crush the head of the serpent. And the whole Old Testament was God weaving together one cohesive story, one cohesive testimony of a Messiah that was coming to bless the nations. And for the false teachers to minister the Old Covenant to this New Testament believers, to this New Testament church, is to misunderstand everything that God has been doing since the book of Genesis. It's to let the whole storyline of the Bible, the whole ark of redemption, fly right over their heads. This old covenant, this covenant which Paul says brings death to its members, was always subservient to that greater promise of a Messiah that was coming. Paul makes another argument for the glory of Christ's covenant in verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had been glorious in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. And here we find really the heart of the matter. The reason why this new covenant is so much more glorious than the old, it brings the members, the members of the covenant, the righteousness of Jesus Christ through his blood. That the old covenant brought condemnation because it kept pointing out the corruption of our hearts. It it kept uh, telling us, do this and live, do this and live. But the new covenant brings to the people a righteousness that gives them peace with the holy God. It's called a ministry of righteousness because it actually administers the righteousness of Christ to all its members. That old covenant never actually gave righteousness to anybody. It required righteousness. It offered blessings to those who were righteous, but it never actually gave anyone the righteousness that was needed. And in Paul's estimation, the righteousness that this new covenant brings so outshines the glory of the old that it's legitimate for him to say the old covenant has no glory any longer because of the glory that surpasses it. If you look out at the sky at night, you might see tens or hundreds or millions of stars, and they might all shine brightly while it's dark. But as soon as the sun rises over the horizon, as soon as its light starts to come over the land, all those stars and their great light starts to fade and fade away. And in the same way, when the Messiah came to offer a covenant of righteousness to the elect of God, that old covenant began to fade in the background. And that's why Paul can say it has no glory any longer, because there's something even more glorious that surpassed it. Don't misunderstand. God wasn't going back on his promises that he had made to his people. We have to remember it was a conditional covenant. Moses prophesied as early as Deuteronomy 32. There's going to be a day when the Israelites would become so wicked that God would bring all the covenantal curses upon them. The Israelites had had to keep up their end of the deal. They had to keep up their end of the covenant or God would bring it to an end. But he wasn't being unjust. In fact, he had been more patient with the Israelites than you and I ever would have been. Remember in Romans 10, all day long, he says, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And then after thousands of years of anticipation, the Messiah, the one who the whole Old Testament has been about, he finally comes and offers salvation to his people to the literal offspring of Abraham. He offers them salvation. He shows up on the first pages of the New Testament warning them, judgment is coming. The covenantal curses are coming. But if you're born again by the Holy Spirit of God, you'll find safety within his kingdom. The gospel, remember, Paul says, is to the Jew first. The gospel really was for the people. But we know how the story goes. They reject their Messiah, the one who came to save them. And now at Corinth, the Judaizers are making a a really similar mistake. They, aren't, they just aren't getting the, the purpose of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was always meant to be temporary. It had an expiration date built into it. So to try to keep ministering that Old Covenant after Christ has already come 
is to really play with fire. You're begging God to take you back to the shadows. Can you imagine saying that to God? Take me back to the shadows. When the substance is right in front of you, Jesus Christ is right in front of you. Why would you go back to the glory of Moses when the glory of Jesus Christ is so freely offered to us? And that's the very conclusion that Paul reaches in verse 11. For if that which was being brought to an end was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. And here's the, anticipation, or the application rather that Paul draws from these truths in verse 12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the consequences of what was being brought to an end. He's speaking here of the greater boldness and clarity that he and Timothy had as they minister this new covenant to the people. Paul compares his bold preaching and proclamation to the somewhat dim and obscure, the really hidden ministry of Moses. He had to put a veil over his face to hide these glories, to hide the glories of the old covenant. But now that the fullness of the new covenant ministry has come, now that God has more plainly and clearly manifested his plans and purposes in the person of Jesus Christ, Paul doesn't have to preach as though there was a veil over his face, obscuring and hiding the glory. He could preach with plainness of speech and expound with clarity the good news of the gospel now that it's been brought into focus through Jesus Christ. Moses didn't have that kind of clarity. All he knew about this hope of redemption was indirect and unclear. But now through the direct ministry of the Savior himself, we have a kind of clarity and simplicity of purpose that gives us great boldness in our preaching. If you read in verse 14, But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's brought to an end in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their hearts. Even in Paul's day, it was the practice of the leaders of the synagogue to sit on the seat of Moses and read the Old Testament. But Paul uses that metaphor of Moses' veil, which it hid and made somewhat obscure the, the glory that shone forth from his face. And he says that there's that same kind of veil on the hearts of the Jews. When the Old Covenant is read, that veil still lies over their hearts, obscuring the purpose and intent of the covenant in the first place. But, Paul says, I'm sure with his Damascus Road experience in mind, that the veil is brought to an end in Christ. Or as he says in verse 16, But whenever a person turns to the Lord, there the veil is taken away. If you're an unbeliever here, you're probably not Jewish, and you're certainly not under the Mosaic Covenant. But the words of that covenant should still really send terror into your ears. Do this and live. It should remind you over and over that you are not perfect enough. You are not righteous enough. You are not good enough. And like all men, you will stand before God on the last day. And he'll pull out that same standard of righteousness that he judges all men and nations by. And I can promise you, dear friend, if you go and plead your righteousness on that day, if you go and plead your own law-keeping before him on that day, if you try to enter the gates of heaven by your record, you'll be met with the same fate as the Israelites. You'll be slayed. You'll hear those same words that they did in Deuteronomy 28. So all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not listen to the voice of Yahweh, your God. You're not going to get by on your own merits. But the glorious news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come to inaugurate a new covenant in his blood. That the veil which hides the face of the Father from those who are perishing is taken away in Jesus Christ. So please, flee to Christ. Why would you stay in your sin when Christ offers you life? Why would you go to your deathbed under the curse of sin when that curse has been completely overcome? So come to the new ministry of righteousness, this new covenant of life. Don't you want his righteousness? Don't you want an advocate with the Father? Don't you see that outside of this covenant, life is empty and vain? Don't you want to see the glory of the Father? 
I could promise you, if you turn to Christ, that veil will be taken away. That if you turn to Christ, that veil of darkness will be lifted by the Holy Spirit of God. As we read in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's where the veil is done away with. But we all, we all who have been converted, who have come to this new covenant ministry, but we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is what Christ offers you in the gospel. There's freedom from that condemnation of the law, and there's a freedom to behold the Lord with an unveiled face. And through that beholding of the glories of God in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul says that we're changed from glory to glory. So not only has Paul answered his opponents at this point, he's also sufficiently warned the Corinthians, don't be enticed by going back to this old covenant. Paul's ministering something substantially different, something far greater than what was offered by Moses. And if the Corinthians want life, if they want everlasting life in Christ, they're only going to find it in the new covenant, which has been made with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now that leads us to a pretty important question you may have already asked yourself. I'm arguing that Paul has set these two covenants in contrast, the old and the new. And in setting these two covenants in contrast, one of the things he says is unique about this new covenant in the blood of Christ is that it offers salvation. The new covenant offers righteousness, the old didn't. The new offers the Spirit, the old didn't. So the question is, what about all those Old Testament saints? Did Abraham not have salvation? Or Moses? Or David? Well, of course they did. In the book of Romans, Paul uses two of those men in particular, David and Abraham, as examples of people who have been justified by faith. They've been declared righteousness by their faith. I just got through arguing that it's only through the new covenant that the law of God goes from being a harsh word outside of you to a life-giving word that's written on your heart. But what about the psalmist? When he says, oh, how love I thy law. It's my meditation all the day. Or what about Psalm 37? The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. If that old covenant really was a ministry of condemnation and death, as Paul says, then what do we make of these men who, let's face it, were probably more faithful than we were in some cases? I mean, Abraham is set up, right, as the father of the faithful. He's the ideal image of what faithfulness to the promises of God looks like. It's a complex question, but I think the scriptures really do tell us enough to make sense out of it. We'll have to connect some dots here. Uh, Keep in mind, on the one hand, Paul really does say that the old covenant is a ministry of death and condemnation. In Hebrews 8, the author really does make a contrast with the covenant that gave life and regeneration and a covenant that didn't. But look at Galatians 3 for a moment. Let's turn there. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 5. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, there's Abraham being saved by faith alone. So know that those who are of faith, those are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the what? The gospel, the good news to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you. It wasn't some other way of salvation that was proclaimed to Abraham. There's, one, there's not one way of salvation for the Old Testament saints and one for New Testament saints. No, we're all saved in the same way, the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for sinners. Has anyone ever been saved outside of partaking the blood of Christ? Absolutely not. How could they be? 
If we're all dead in our sins and trespasses, if everyone in Old and New Testaments are law-breaking sinners who needed atonement for their sins, then no one could be saved outside of that perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The text says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. There is no gospel, there is no good news outside of Christ Jesus saving sinners by his blood. Now, I'm not saying that Abraham heard a voice from heaven and told him that a man named Jesus was coming to die on a cross. No, remember from our text this morning, the revelation under that old covenant was obscured and dim, but he did know that there was a promised seed who was coming to crush the head of the enemy. He did know that there was a seed coming to bless the nations. In other words, he knew that salvation was located outside himself and in the work of another who God would reveal in a proper time. And it was faith in that promise, in that gospel, that same gospel that we have, but a a more obscured form that brought him peace with God. One theologian describes it like a payday loan. If you have a regular paycheck that comes in every week for the same amount, you can go to one of these payday loan places and get your check in advance, if that makes sense. You can go get a loan for that same amount of money before you actually receive your paycheck from the employer. And one event that was infinitely more sure, I promise you, than your paycheck, which you're getting next week, is that Christ would come to bless the nations, that Christ would come and die on this cross. And so it's in light of that promise of Christ, that, that promise of the Christ who is to come, that men were justified and saved in the Old Testament. They partook of the benefits of Christ's blood before it was actually shed in time. And I know that's confusing, but it's the only answer. The gospel, the good news, was preached to Abraham. This gospel of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, in some form, it was preached to Abraham. And now we can finally get to answering the original question. It's my contention that in the same way that this blood of Christ who was to come was able to save that Old Testament believer. In the same way that the benefits of Christ's death were brought to Abraham and Moses and David, so too were the benefits of the new covenant. Remember, Paul says that the old covenant brought condemnation and death. We have to take those those statements seriously. They brought condemnation and death to those who were under them. The old covenant never saved a single soul. Salvation is only found in the new covenant because the new covenant is the only one for which Christ shed his blood. That's the only covenant for which Christ poured out his life. And remember when he said, when he held up the cup, this is, my, this is my blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. The worship team can make their way up here. I'll conclude with the words of Calvin. Here's the answer to our question. I'm more willing to talk about this afterward, by the way. I can't really cover it all while I'm up here. Calvin wrote this. This is the answer to the question. There is yet no reason why God should not have extended the grace of the new covenant to the fathers. I'll say that one more time. There is yet no reason why God should not have extended the grace of the new covenant to the fathers. He says, this is the true solution to the question. I praise God that from Genesis 3.15 and onward, he has had one unified plan of redemption for mankind. And that plan turns on the person of Jesus Christ and the covenant that he established in his blood. Praise God for that glorious covenant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the redemption you provided in your son, Jesus Christ. I pray you use this teaching on the covenant to embolden us to proclaim your gospel with plainness of speech and that many people would come into the kingdom by us proclaiming the glorious news of a new covenant in your blood. We pray in your name. Amen.